You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's episode, we sit down with Thelma Ekior, who is an impact investor and who's an expert in business development, social entrepreneurship, fundraising, and was a senior public sector project advisor. She's implemented projects in 22 African countries. She served as a senior consulate to the African Union, and she co-founded a Nigerian impact investment platform for women. On today's episode, we talk about What's it like to be a strategic policy advisor for the UN? What happens at deal day at the end of an accelerator program? What's it like to be an impact investor? Also, how difficult is it for a business to operate in a country where bank interest rates are 23% or more? And what is a typical check size for seed stage and A round companies in Nigeria? This and much more on today's episode of Silicon Valley. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Thelma, thank you for taking the time today to be on Silicon Valley. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for having me. Now, Thelma, I just have one question to kind of frame this whole interview. When people think of Nigeria... What's the first thing that pops in their mind or what should they be thinking of? I think I like the way you've asked the question, what should they be thinking of? I think they should be thinking about the fact that Nigeria has the largest tech market in Africa. At the moment, Nigeria has 55 active hubs and just last year bypassed both South Africa and Kenya in terms of uh, VC investments. So for this part of the world, that's what they should be thinking of, I think. But generally, I think um, the untold stories of Nigeria, for example, is that we have Africa's biggest film industry. At some point, we're going to give Hollywood a run for their money. But right now, we're working at beating Bollywood. The film industry makes over 20 films a week, and it has really taken over Africa. So that's another thing that a lot of people that are not on the continent, I think most Africans know about what we call Nollywood, but it's not well known here. So I think those two things stand out. And then you're here today in Silicon Valley because you're a keynote speaker for this amazing event at the Computer History Museum. Can you talk about kind of your journey that's led up to this point? So first of all, I really need to thank the organizers of the Africa Diaspora Network, led by an amazing woman called Almaz Nagash. Almaz has been hosting this annual convening that brings Africans who live on the continent and in the diaspora together to talk about different issues. But this year, the focus is on investment. And so I'm speaking at the investment symposium and it's convened over 250 people. So it's really exciting to be having this conversation at a time when investment in Africa is really growing and both indigenous investments have also grown as well as inward investment. So I'm happy to be here. And in terms of my journey, I've had, in some sense, for a lot of people, I've worked in different areas, but I think all of the things that I've done were shaping up to really equip me for what I'm doing now. I've worked in 22 African countries, and I think that was my training ground to really understand poverty and what it does to people. And so there's a philosophy behind how I invest and how I work with the target groups that I work with, which are women. Let's talk about that time with 22 different countries. That's, mm. that's amazing, especially 
someone here from the West, most of us, to be honest, have never visited Africa and really don't know too much about the ecosystem there and even the individual countries. Going back, you worked for the Open Society for West Africa, which is the name of the Source Institute for West Africa. Can you talk about this experience? So I worked for a spin-off that was established by the Open Society. It was called the West African Institute for Civil Society. And I was the first CEO. And that was a really exciting job. I, in that job, I was overseeing 15 countries. Basically, if, you, if you're familiar with the work of the Open Society, this happened at a time when a lot of West African countries were just coming out of war, protracted wars, Liberia, Sierra Leone, Guinea, Ivory Coast. And so our organization was really focused on how do we create equitable societies? How do we open up spaces for normal, everyday African citizens to have their voices matter in societies that were predominantly dictatorial? And how do you build institutions of governance, the institutions of um, free press? I loved the job because I was often working with people at the ACON stages of their communities and helping them build structures that I'm really proud of have lasted, even though I've left that job over 10 years now. 22 countries throughout Africa. How is each area kind of different? What challenges did you encounter? So I think the first thing we're going to do after this interview is make sure you visit Africa, Sean. I think no matter how I describe it, I would not do it justice. Africa is it's extremely beautiful. Very, a lot of places are still unspoiled, but there's a lot of vibrancy there. And the type of development that's happening in Africa is often from a place of survival. And so the innovations that are taking place across the continent are scrappy. They're very dogged. People have to make it. And, you know, when you see people come from nothing and then build something, it's always not only gratifying if it's work I'm involved in, but also inspiring for me to know that it's only a matter of time the continent is going to be the powerhouse that it should be. And then you also were a policy advisor for the UN. I worked as a strategic policy advisor for UN Nigeria. So I was teasing you before the interview saying that I'm a nerd, but it is true. I like to work with putting policies together because obviously if you're doing the work that we do, the government structures, the policy environment for implementing that work is very important. And so the UN brought me on in my personal capacity to help design strategic policies for Nigeria. So I designed a private sector policy for the UN for Nigeria. And that also dovetails into what I'm doing, working on how the private sector can invest in development and help with achieving the strategic sustainable development goals. And then I also designed a five-year policy for conflict prevention. You might wonder what's the link, but that's important because some parts of Nigeria are still experiencing intra-country conflicts. And so investment can't take place, obviously. I'm really, really proud of that work as well, because every time I see the UN doing anything in Nigeria, I think to myself, well, no one knows that I was part of putting that together. And so the work that we did is actually shaping government's interventions, the way government interacts with the UN. How is that private-public relationship with the UN and kind of the developing startup or the developing business ecosystem? That's such an excellent question. It was the reason why I was brought on board to develop the strategic policy framework, because if you're familiar with the history of the UN, the UN often comes into a country, partners with the government, mostly has its own funds, but until recently never really took advantage of the private sector in Africa. 
to help with development. And so the private sector is a major beneficiary of peaceful communities, of a conducive environment for business. By and large, most of them were not involved in development. And so the strategy is about how to connect the UN with the private sector. Nigeria has a very, very vibrant private sector community. And so how do you create partnerships to make sure companies invest in the communities? That was what policy was. How is the a little bit more of the interaction? Because I'm guessing even in the UN, the mm-hmm. people there probably aren't familiar with the local ecosystem. Some of them are. So the local staff often are. But the, most, the way the UN works is, so the head of the UN will be from another country and most of the senior staff. So those people have to learn about the country. And they're often extremely good people, obviously, for them to commit their lives to leave their families and go to another country. And Nigeria is, I mean, everyone knows, is a contradiction in many ways. It's very, very big. Also, it has tons of natural resources, massive human capital, but it also has difficult policy structures. And so if you want to do anything in Nigeria, you're often kind of like driving against a very, very strong wind. And that is what most people that come in have to deal with. But over the years, it has eased up a little. And so the policy framework that I designed was how do you work within the country to ensure that there's a synergy between the private sector's bottom line goals and development goals. One thing that really is interesting to me when I was doing research on Africa is the demographics, the youth. It's the youngest continent. The average age, I think, was 20. Less than 30. How is that going to affect the economy moving forward? On one hand, it presents a huge potential for innovation. And that's what's happening in the tech industry. It's mostly young people that have driven it. But it also, there are a lot of young people that don't have jobs who graduate from university and have to sit around and that causes apathy. So if not properly handled, it is, as some of the policymakers have described it, a ticking time bomb where you just have so many energetic young people with nothing to do. And what then happens is they try to leave the country. They try to, some of them would, across Africa, you have situations of uh, illegal migrations. They get on these boats. I'm sure you've seen it in the news. Some of them die on the way. Some of them try to come to the U.S. by all means and things like that because there's literally nothing to do. And I think understanding migration has often been a problem in how people look at Africa because if the countries are well-functioning, if they're available jobs or the ability for young people to start businesses, the numbers of people who migrate illegally will reduce. So it's a vicious cycle. And obviously anybody, just like I read about and watch on the news of people who try to come to the US from Mexico and other countries in South America, everyone essentially looks for a better life for themselves and their family. And I think that is something, the population of young people is something that anyone who is interested in Africa has to design interventions to address. Is that a problem though? Kind of maybe the best engineers, best entrepreneurs, even the country, is it kind of depleting maybe local resources for entrepreneur talent? It is, but this new wave, I mean, it's, I always say that Mark Zuckerberg came to Nigeria and he wasn't invited by the government. He came to Nigeria because of these young, techie guys who are just in jeans and t-shirts and putting all sorts of amazing innovations together. And he had to come and see for himself. And so I thought that was really courageous of him because obviously it was a very new environment. But you can see that for a lot of young people who are talented, they're just taking the bull by the horns themselves. 
and doing it. And oftentimes it's usually access to finance that keeps them away from realizing their dreams. Before I ask about the access to finance, you just mentioned Mark Zuckerberg visited. How are the relationships right now between Silicon Valley and Africa? I think that was really something that was an injection to the ecosystem that was very encouraging. There are relationships that have been built one on one. For example, a lot of us come over here because we have partners here who invite us for things and all of that. But I think having VCs and tech companies not as big. I mean, Facebook is in Nigeria. Google is in Nigeria. Microsoft is, has always been in Nigeria. I'm not talking about those type of companies. I'm just talking about the average tech investor here being curious enough to say, "Let me go and visit and see what's happening." And every time, because I work with some of these entrepreneurs, they've all invested because one thing Nigeria has is the numbers. People have tried. People have said, "Well, let's start in Kenya. Let's go to Ghana." Yeah, these are much more stable countries. That is true, and but in very short periods, they realize that nah, you can't make as much money as you can in Nigeria. So we always just wait for them <laughs> to show up, and they always then find their way to Nigeria and set up there. Do the entrepreneurs have access to banks to VC funding? So all that is still in the embryonic phase. There are banks, big, huge banks, Nigerian banks all over Africa, but the average interest rate uh, for entrepreneurs is 23%. And that is stifling. So most people just don't bother. What then happens is a lot of entrepreneurs rely on these informal money lenders who are really charlatans who just basically take them to the bank and eventually they spend more than they would have ever spent going to the formal banks. So that has been the environment, but over the last few years, a new trend has emerged, which I'm sure someone will do excellent research on, which is the rise of indigenous funds, VC funds, private equity funds, impact funds. Mine is an impact fund. My firm has impact funds, and all that has introduced a new dynamic into the market, where banks are saying, "Oh, yeah, now we have competition, and if anybody that wants to work." In Africa, has to look at how you introduce patient capital, because you are dealing with infrastructural issues as well, as well as the normal things that an entrepreneur will encounter. You have to deal with a limited or no electricity in many places where people have to work with generators, and so a business plan that doesn't include a generator, I never look at it because obviously that person hasn't thought about that problem, and so that is the environment. So when you see entrepreneurs. Make good on their business models, and you really have to take your hat off to them because you know what they're dealing with on a daily basis. I'm really curious about what those business models look like and how different they are. And you just mentioned factoring in a generator. I'm sure you never have to think about that here. Typically, the capital cities are better. One of the benefits of working across Africa is that I've seen that I worked in Accra. I had a generator, but I barely put it on. In South Africa, I worked in Cape Town. I didn't even have a generator, but then after I left, they had a power crisis. So, different countries have their own kind of varied experiences with access to power. But in Nigeria, it's really bad, obviously because we're almost 200 million people. The national grid cannot keep up, and so one of the most interesting areas for any investor now in Nigeria is renewable energy, 
I happen to sit on the board of the largest renewable energy private fund in Nigeria. What we've seen, the type of innovations that people have put before us to be financed have really helped create in creating private access to power. If we waited for the government, it, it would never happen. You mentioned South Africa, Kenya. When a person thinks of Africa, should they think of it as one continent or individual countries? Another excellent question. I often have to explain to people that I don't know much about Egypt. So we're not homogeneous. There are similarities, obviously, but we're not homogeneous. Every region has its peculiarities. One of the things that we haven't done very well, and a lot of governments have been investing a lot in it, is intra-Africa investment. So we've always looked to the West. But because of the way that the different cities in Africa are getting very well developed, people are investing across the continent. So Nigeria is a lot more similar to Ghana than it is to Kenya or South Africa, because we're both in West Africa. But even within West Africa, because half of West Africa was colonized by the French and the other half by the English, there's a language barrier. So Nigeria is next door to Benin, but Benin speaks French, we speak English. So Affinities are also formed around language. And so you would find that people would do more. Nigerians will go more to do more business in Ghana, which is a few countries away, than do business in Benin or Togo, which are next door. For European expansion, what does that look like? Does the French-speaking countries mostly go then to France and then the English-speaking mostly into, I'm guessing, England? Or what's their out-of-Africa expansion models? The Francophones, they're called Francophone countries. Yes, they mostly affiliate with France and Belgium. And I think there's something called the Commonwealth. So countries that were colonized by the British are part of the Commonwealth. We operate there, but Nigerians on their own really formed a very strong connection with the US. And there's a lot of one-on-one relationships that have been built over time and investments that happen across that. And then you talked about impact funds. Could you talk a little bit about your fund and the focus of it? So my company is called SMENG. The NG is Nigeria, SME Nigeria. It's a joint venture between my company, the funding space. I have this annual convening, which I organize, and one of the largest investment banks in Nigeria. We came together to set up the company because obviously they wanted to invest in women. I had been doing it for a few years and they thought, why set up something new? Why not invest in what I'm doing? And so I'm very grateful for that because it enabled us to create a really ambitious and bold company. So we deliberately decided to create impact funds because we were looking at results that would focus on, yes, financial returns, but also social returns as well, where women are concerned. And we invest through what is known as gender lens investing. How do we ensure that women are positioned properly in whatever sector that they're working in, empower women more with to have a voice and more influence in the areas where they work, help them with access to markets, to build strong businesses that can be intergenerational. And so we're not just about the returns. The returns will come because obviously the area that we work in is untapped mostly, but we're very keen on ensuring that over a period of time, we're able to tangibly point to a number of women's businesses that we've built up that would be passed from one generation to another. Now, is there currently maybe a ceiling that these companies can reach in Nigeria? We have two funds. We have the AB fund, which are for smaller businesses. 
Often, if you look at the data or do the research on women entrepreneurs in Africa, you'll find that they're shackled within the micro and small business spaces. Everyone has micro funds for women. It's always like no one wants women to grow beyond the micro. We are totally against that. We invest in women in, in an aspirational way that they can grow from the micro to small to medium and eventually become large because that's how everyone's life should be. It should be aspirational. So that's the AB fund. And then we have some, uh, the larger fund called the Women's Investment Fund, which is for larger, more established businesses. And uh, your question on ceiling, in doing the research for the establishment of the fund, we found that women have either self-imposed ceiling or societal imposed ceiling where they feel like, oh, I can take $150,000, but nothing more. Anything more than that would just be too much. And that's obviously because there are cultural issues as well. So we deliberately invest in those businesses to scale and we help them with looking beyond Nigeria because one of the things that I talked earlier about intra-Africa trade, most of the women's businesses would do very well if they thought about looking at other markets, even within West Africa. How does one coach that cultural growth in the sense of, yes, you can do this, you can build this? I'm happy you asked that because before any entrepreneur accesses our funds, they have to pass through an all-women's accelerator called She Works Here. We deliberately designed She Works Here because everything, when we did the survey with women's groups, when we asked them, why aren't you growing? What is the problem? One was access to information. The other one was inability to learn from their peers, to learn from other women. Another one was difficulty in meeting statutory requirements. So there are very stringent statutory requirements in Nigeria, that legal requirements that you must have to set up a business. And often the cost of doing that is so high that women just don't bother. So in the accelerator, we help them do all of that. Then we also then help them with what you would see in any accelerator across the world, which is how do you do your books? How do you build a strong team? How do you function as the head of the company? Things like that. Very practical. Only after graduating from the accelerator do we do a due diligence on them because we give them a chance to go back and put together everything that we've taught them and then we invest. You talked about access and mentors. I mean, Silicon Valley here, we have people that have had successful exits everywhere. I'm guessing there's not that abundant amount of mentors in Nigeria because it's such a young ecosystem. Where are you finding the current mentors? You are right that they may not be as many as you would have here, but we do have women who quietly have built successful businesses, like I said earlier, because of cultural issues, don't want to make noise about it. They just want to get on with it. And in that way, maybe we inherited that from the British as well. And so many of these women, we bring them into the accelerator to talk about experiences. And what happens is most often the entrepreneurs either have never heard of this woman who's made lots of money millions in dollars. And they talk about how they've built a business in Nigeria. Well, the reason we do that is often to inspire the entrepreneurs to say that, yes, it's difficult here, but someone is doing it. And so they're able to talk firsthand about how they've done it and how they've grown the business, how they're profitable. We also bring women from sectors that are relevant to the women in the accelerator. So there are a lot of women in the agricultural space in Nigeria the smallholder farmers. So we bring people that have been successful in that area to, to talk to them. And when we do the evaluation of the accelerator, it, it often scores the highest. Those sessions where they're just speaking to someone who has walked where they would like to walk. Can you talk a little bit more about the accelerator? 
maybe some specialties of that accelerator that might be unique to Nigeria. And then talk a little bit about the deal day. I'm curious about that. She works here. It's an all women's accelerator. There are different time frames for obviously the smaller women's businesses. They have a different accelerator from the larger women's businesses. What we do is, I'm sure it's probably not what you would see in a typical accelerator. So we make them do some modeling, fashion modeling, for example, as part of confidence building, because many of these women have been told for decades, you're not anything, you can't do anything. So there's often a self-confidence issue. And to be successful in business, you have to be very confident. You have to be able to walk into a room and own the room. And we teach them that. We have an exercise where we make them literally walk through doors and teach them how to come into a meeting. And before even saying a word, everyone in the meeting is attentive and waiting for you to talk. Now, there's no textbook that can teach you that. It's experienced people who come in and take them through this. I'm sure you wouldn't find that in most accelerators. But we also have a day when we do a potluck where everyone brings Nigerian food from different parts of Nigeria. And we sit together and we just talk about building a community. What does it mean to build a community of women entrepreneurs in this environment? All those things are really deliberate. We're looking beyond that particular class. Over time, we want to have an ecosystem of successful women that have passed through us. And so all those exercises are ways of laying the foundation to have connectors. So at the end of the accelerator, so they call it graduation. We call it the deal day. Obviously, most of the women that we work with have not experienced what you would call a formal deal day. But what we do is before the end of the accelerator, the deal day, we take them through now the formal part of any business school, which is how do you pitch? How do you, not always how you use a PowerPoint, but how do you just come into a place and talk about your business for five minutes that would impress any investor? And so on the deal day, we invite other funds, other investors. So we are an impact fund, but what we do is we invite venture philanthropists, we invite private equity, we invite people that are normal VCs and foundations. We invite them to the deal day and they listen to these women. And it's really been encouraging because some of the women even if we can't fund them, they're exposed to these other sources of funding. And that relationship is also part of building the ecosystem. So we're determined that any woman who comes to us never leaves disappointed. At the very least, she must say she gained skills from the accelerator to improve her business. Yes, the money is often the goal for most accelerators, but we believe that building healthy businesses is goal one. The money's goal too. Speaking of money, what are typical check sizes and what kind of valuations are companies raising at once they graduate an accelerator? For our funds, use ours as an example because I think there are no fixed sizes. It depends on the sector. So for example, if you're investing in a business that does renewable energy, you're looking at larger ticket sizes. You're looking at a million dollars or more. Obviously, those are more established businesses. But for the smaller women's businesses that we're investing, it starts as little as $5,000 and it goes up to 90 million. I'm trying to do the conversion from Naira to dollars. So it will go up to, I think, $300,000. There's a legal definition for small business in Nigeria as well. So we have to make sure that we're within that as we do. And then the larger women's businesses start from half a million and then and higher. There was a woman who came for our, one of our 
consultations with entrepreneurs, totally unassuming. And when she talked about her annual turnover, we all couldn't believe it. I mean, I would have walked past her on the road and she'd never accessed external financing, but her turnover was over $5 million a year. She makes envelopes, go figure, and has been making for years. You said build this community of successful women founders. Can you talk about some of the companies that have gone through the accelerator and some of the alumni? I have some companies I'm really excited about because I think over time on the market, they would do extremely well. There's a business who makes, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of something called plantain chips. So plantain chips are a very African snack. Plantains are like bananas. And so they're made into like chips. I guess you call them crisps here. And this woman makes them, but she makes them the low fat version. So of course, everyone's really interested in that. Then there's a lady we're investing in who has created a furniture hub and she makes affordable furniture because most of the carpenters she works with, they don't have any tools or anything. We're investing in her to create a hub where female carpenters can come to the hub and work with the tools she has there, but also are able to make furniture. So they vary. We have another woman who makes cassava flour. It's a staple in almost all West African countries, but her goal is to export it to, well, she said the US was number one, but because of the African diaspora here, for them to buy organic cassava flour. So we have different types of businesses. For the KPIs or key performance indicators for these businesses, you'd mentioned successful women, but is it the number of jobs they create, the amount of revenue? What matrix do you use? Another excellent question. So for us, because our focus is on women's owned businesses, we look at how much they own in the business, number one. A lot of so-called women's businesses are fronts. That's one of the things we found out. So it's a woman, her husband says, well, just have something to do. Give some money to do it. But he owns the business and he makes all the rules and all of that. So we have that. And so we look at that. We also look at how much she's been doing on her own. We look at her turnover on her own before we ever came in. We're not looking for perfection because we know we're not going to find it. There's a lady that we're investing in who keeps her books in paper. She's always just kept it as paper, but she keeps her books very diligently, in fact. And so we're graduating that to computers for her <laughs> and building a team around her that focuses on that because that's not her strength. And she focuses on her strength. We look at businesses that can be scaled beyond where they are at the moment. So what will this business look like in five years? Is this a stagnant market or is this a market that can build up over time? We look at that. For the larger women's businesses, we definitely look at how they have factored succession planning into the business because most of the larger women's businesses are built around a personality. And so just like every other business, I guess, I mean, the same way that Apple had to think about what happens after Steve Jobs, every business has to look at that. And so even with small women's businesses, because you often have a very dynamic leader who's driven the business with passion and conviction, then we wonder, okay, who can keep this going if she gets tired, if she gets older, you know, what happens? So we start for those businesses, we start to talk to them about building a team that can take over. It really is no formula. And we also are very conscious of the fact that we're pioneering a sector because most of what exists for the matrix for 
invested in business are based on Western context, and they're not applicable many times to what happens in Africa. Succession planning, to be honest, that's something that we've never really talked about here on the show. One of the meetings I organized, I was blown away. A lady called and said, can I bring my daughter? And I thought, why does she want to bring her daughter? For some reason, I thought it was a baby. And I thought, well, we don't have a crush for this meeting. Often we would have crushes. But she shows up and she shows up with this 25-year-old girl. And she says, my daughter's shown an interest in the business and I'd like her to start coming to these meetings with me so she hears what investors are looking for. And I thought, amazing. We need to create room for this because the daughter had just come back from the UK, gotten a master's and was interested in the business. And you don't have a lot of intergenerational businesses in Africa in general, and mainly in Nigeria, no. The businesses are often founder-based and they die after the founder or somebody just buys it up. And how do you create, we're talking about creating a sector. One of the qualities of any sector is longevity. How long do businesses last in the sector? And so we factor that into our investment strategy. We'll help these businesses interrogate and look at the prospect of succession. And it's not only family, but is there someone on your team that you're grooming to take over from you? Is there someone that can take this business in a new direction? Often these women have run their businesses by themselves for 10 years and change is scary. So often they're not the ones to change it. Someone else needs to come and change it. And so we take them through that. And it's a learning experience for us as well, because the textbooks don't have anything like that. Most people who do this work that we do use Western references. And we learned pretty early that there was a disconnect. So we're documenting everything that we do because we're very certain that it'd be useful for other investors and for other people that want to work in the area that we work in. I'm really curious about the Western influence and how the teachings here have that disconnect. What are some of the biggest things that you've noticed doing negotiations or deals between the West, because you were here at Stanford, and in Nigeria? So much of what we do is Americanized. And I think most of Africa, actually, because American culture is very strong and it has permeated a lot. And also, this is one of the reasons why I say, I tell my American friends that they don't realize how much good America has also done in many parts of the world. And of course, you can talk about the things that are not so good, but in terms of what USAID and other institutions like that have done in Africa to help build small businesses legendary across the continent, especially in the countries where I worked, where you had to deal with rebuilding the entire society, a lot of American organizations would always be there. So obviously that just goes with the territory that many of the templates that are used are American. But with the new trend of indigenous organizations coming up, what we found is that you learn from the West, but you contextualize it. So yes, I, I mean, I attended schools in the US. I came here to Stanford and all of that. But when I went back, I used all of that knowledge, which is priceless, to design interventions that fit Nigeria. And I think I often say that I'm really blessed to be able to take all of the training and the knowledge that I've gained to create something that is relevant for my country. And I think that's the only way for me personally that you can do that. So the books from my MBA, when I look at them now, I look at them through the lens of, will this work here? Or should I start using the knowledge that I have on how to create business models that will work in Nigeria? 
if there was anything that could be imported into Nigeria to really accelerate the already amazing growth, what would it be? I think this is one of the reasons why I certainly always look forward to coming here. I learn a lot every time I'm here. I think one of the things that we've started doing as well is just there are a lot of convenings that take place here. People just get together. And I think we do it already, but I think we have to take it up a notch. I've come here and I've met people that in a dinner or something, at the end of it, we're talking about a deal we're going to put together. You know, we need those type of things there. And I think also, I talked about the power problem. If I could take anything from here, every time I'm in the US or anywhere, I never have to think on will the lights come on. So I think just basic things that if we had that there, it would just change completely the way people set up businesses, but also the way people invest in businesses. And Thelma, can you talk a little bit about what you expect the growth to be in the next five years? If I think about how fast it's grown in the last five years, I'm really confident that Nigeria is going to be a powerhouse. I read an article that talked about that and I was so pleased that they could see what I'm seeing. It is the indices are there. For a lot of years, we focused on what the government was not doing, but private individuals have ignored the government now and are basically just creating change on their own. So I'm expecting that in five years when I come to visit and I'm talking to you, I'm going to be talking about how we've created a revolution of women entrepreneurs. I'm going to be talking about how the tech industry will grow. It has a life of its own. But I think right now, a lot of the innovations that are coming from Africa are for Africa. If we can export it to the West, yeah, but mostly the innovations that would change the continent. That's what people are creating, innovations in education, in health, in the way we communicate. And I think that should continue. In five years, I believe that we will be showcasing a lot of lucrative innovations that were created by Africans for Africa. And what type of partners would be idea for this growth in the next few years or for yourself? I believe that people have to realize that the top-down approach of working with Africa has changed. There are now very many competent, established, experienced Africans doing work. So the partnerships have to be symbiotic, really partnerships based on value. I'm happy with some of our partners here who have already come to speak at the Accelerator. I'm looking for partners who are interested in helping us build the Accelerator. Knowledge sharing is critical. I just have to tell you this little anecdote. There's an entrepreneur who I was a judge at a pitching competition and she pitched a product that I knew instantly was a moneymaker. And I got a, a form from Silicon Valley to recommend any young entrepreneur that had come up with a life-changing innovation and I recommended her. She's here this week and I'm so excited. Those are the stories that happen. She sent me the most amazing letter and life is going to change. So we need to create opportunities for people who will never, ever have access Silicon Valley to leave their comfort zones and come and see what's happening there. Even if she doesn't win the pitch, the experience of being here will change how she does business. I'm confident about that. And before I conclude the interview, is there any advice on either looking for women founders or invested in women founders, any more takeaways you want people to know? I think women across the world 
We have one thing in common. Any woman who has risen up in any way has faced the battle of rising. And I think what I've been doing for the last few years, I've been building a lot of networks with other women investors. And some of them have come to Nigeria. Whenever I go to their own countries, I learn a lot. I think we need to do a lot more of that. Women founders are so inspirational from the ones that have funds that are $10 million and more and the ones that are just starting out. There's a quality that we all have, which is never give up. And I think the advice that I have for women founders is look beyond Silicon Valley, look beyond the US. You will find that you have a lot of affinity with other women founders in other countries. And if anyone wants to find out more information about you, what's the best way to go about doing it? LinkedIn. I think just look me up on LinkedIn, connect. Let's start conversations. Thelma, I'd like to thank you for your time today. I also want to thank Jillian Harding, who made the introduction that allowed today's interview to happen. Also, Jenny Lin, who introduced me to Jillian and Nigel and everyone else that I've met that has supported this podcast. Oh, and if you liked and enjoyed this podcast, please write a five-star review on iTunes, which encourages us to make more content like this. And please share it and let us have feedback on your thoughts and what you'd like to hear in future episodes. So Thelma, once again, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Sean. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.